everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More, Better Conversations in Healthcare. I'm so excited about today's episode and our guest because we get conversations wrong a lot in medicine, but probably the area we get things the most wrong is when it comes to talking about weight. Um, and today, especially with all things in the news, you know, obesity is on everybody's mind. Vanity weight is always a thing. Um, so today we are going to have a conversation about those conversations and hopefully learn a lot about our approach to weight in general in healthcare. My guest today is Dr. Michelle May. She is so accomplished, family practice physician, retired from practice in 2006 to establish Am I Hungry Mindful Eating Programs and Training, where she basically teaches and creates programs about how to approach weight. She's also a co-author of an article that was just published a year ago called The Consequences of a Weight-Centric Approach to Healthcare. I'm going to say that again because that title of that article says so much. The Consequences of a Weight-Centric Approach to Healthcare. So you're too fat, you're too thin, your BMI is this, you were this and now you're that. And those conversations probably happen, you know, 30 times a day in my practice. And we are going to unpack that a little bit. Dr. Michelle May, welcome to the show. I'm I'm like winded now just introducing you. That's how awesome you are. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Christine. I really appreciate it. Yes, I had those conversations many, many times myself. And it was one of the reasons I became so interested in helping people in a very different way. And to just make a little tweak to my introduction, Am I Hungry really isn't about weight or weight loss. It's about making sustainable behavior changes. And therein is one of one of the examples of our weight-centric approach is that, you know, making changes in our behavioral approach to well-being doesn't always involve weight. So that's a great, I think that's a great entry into this very important conversation. Perfect. I love it. So tell me a little bit, Michelle, about when you were in practice and maybe some conversations or patient scenarios that got you thinking like, wow, I really need to do more than I'm capable of doing as a family practice physician. I, I mean, like you, I, I had many, many conversations with patients. They often came in with uh, something like, you know, I want to lose weight. I've tried everything. What should I do now? And of course, this is uh, quite a long time ago, but nonetheless, those conversations have been going on for many decades because it's not just a weight centric approach to medical practice, we have a weight centric focused culture. And so yeah. people obviously are often both concerned because of aesthetics, but um, of course, health as well. Mm -hmm. So these conversations have been going on forever. And I knew from my own personal experience with yo-yo dieting and from many of my patients who often yo-yo dieted themselves, that what we were doing really doesn't work and hasn't worked. And nonetheless, I think there has actually been harm caused by a weight-centric approach to health. Hmm. So was there, it sounds like, you know, over time, you just started to get a disenfranchised with the notion of the way we doctors coach patients in terms of their 
weight and how it relates to their health or doesn't. Um, was there an aha moment for you? Was there a moment in practice where you're like, man, this is it. I got to do something. Or was it kind of like a slow, you know, deterioration? Yeah, I think it was both. There, uh, over time, I really became clear that what we were doing wasn't working. But as I mentioned, it also causes harm. And, and one example of that is a patient of mine that came with knee pain. And she said she'd seen other physicians for it. And she gave me an example of a conversation that she'd had and became tearful as she was talking about it. She said that the, the doctor that she saw, um, she told him she'd been an athlete in college. She'd gained some weight, quite a bit of weight since college. And she went for this chronic knee pain because it was interfering with her ability to walk regularly, which she loved and hike and play tennis. And she was hoping to get some help for this. And the doctor said to her, well, you know, clearly this is because you're fat. He said, it's like landing a 747 on Piper wheels. This is such a Wow. Awful example of how cruel physicians can be when they're talking to patients about weight, when clearly this is a, a patient who had potential reasons for degenerative joint disease. And yes, maybe her body weight was contributing. But one of the things I ask clinicians to consider is, well, what would you do or say to a patient who comes in with knee pain who is in a smaller body? Because clearly knee pain happens at all body sizes. Mm -hmm. And so if we can, instead of immediately assuming that weight is the root cause of all issues and that weight loss is number one, even effective, which the data does not support, and that weight loss will cure the problem and instead consider, well, what else would I do if that wasn't a, wasn't a possible treatment or, or um, recommendation? So, you know, would, would we get x-rays? Would we refer this, this patient to physical therapy? Would we prescribe anti-inflammatories? Would we refer them to a, an orthopedist? I mean, exactly what would we do? And, and that's really where I think a weight-centric approach um, really falls down and where a weight-inclusive approach can really help us in our communications with our, our clients and patients and where it can also support them in achieving the well-being that we're both after. So that is an example of, you know, a very calloused, uh, unfeeling conversation with a physician. And your uh, methodology, I think, is so good. You know, imagine that this person in front of you wasn't obese or overweight or, you know, like you said, wasn't in a big body, but was in a small body. How would that conversation unfold? And you're absolutely right. It would be very different, which... You know, that is kind of the bias in our entire culture is that we speak differently to people depending on their body size or we treat them differently. And that's probably an entirely different conversation, but it's so important. So 
So you, you have patients like this woman, and I'm sure many, many others. And did you start thinking like, okay, here's how I'm going to help you. I want you to do X, Y, and Z and come back to see me and let's see how you've done. How, what was your approach to conversations with people? Like, were you ever of the mindset? Like, yeah, you really do need to lose weight because respectfully, I am going to disagree a little bit in that there are some conditions that will absolutely improve with weight loss. Um, so it may not be the root cause of everything, but losing weight can benefit people's health in some ways. So, but for you, like if this lady had said to you, okay, Dr. May, what should I do now? What had your approach been? So, well, I, we have to, we, we're going to have to back up and, and talk about some of the things that we skipped over because they're so important and they really point to some of the challenges that we have in trying to make the shift in this approach. I want to answer your question about what I do focus on. And, and one of the, one of the things I think it's important to keep in mind is that weight loss is an outcome. Um, it is not, it is not a behavior. And so when we're trying to work with people, what we want to do is talk about things that are directly under their control, things that they are in charge of. And those are the, the decisions that we make on a daily basis, the decisions like in my, the example of my patient who wanted to walk and play tennis, who was an athlete before and wasn't able to do these things. We need to support them in behaviors that really will help them achieve better health. So I not only became interested in this topic clinically, but we actually published a review article, as you mentioned, about making this shift away from a weight-centric to a weight-inclusive approach. And I reviewed hundreds of articles that frankly, I have, I'm embarrassed to admit that as a physician who didn't have the time to read hundreds of articles, I had not read before. I'd read the abstracts of some of them. I was not even aware of others. And what it pointed out to me is that there is tremendous weight bias, not just in our practices, but even in the way that research is conducted. So for example, many articles that I reviewed had a little paragraph, you know, the introductory paragraph, and it says things like obesity is an epidemic that um, is, you know, the, uh, that is causing diabetes and everything else to soar, you know, whatever the wording is, but we've all seen this. I mean, it's this assumption. It's never referenced it's there's never a, a footnote or an end note to tell us where this data came from, because at this point in time, the idea that obesity and I'm I'm using air quotes if you could see it is the is the cause or or directly um, uh, you know causal in in relationship to for example diabetes is just assumed to be true and we don't look at it. In actuality, diabetes and, and weight are definitely correlated. There are many associated conditions with body weight. You're absolutely right about that, Christine. But we can't prove causation unless we use experimental design. And the reason this is important is because body weight is also associated with many other things 
genetics for one thing, people who are genetically prone to type two diabetes. Um, and we know that the insulin abnormalities that occur in type two diabetes also make people prone to weight gain, which comes first, or do they occur? Do they co-occur? Would weight loss help? Well, in actuality, with many studies that look at interventions designed to uh, reduce body weight, we see improvements in blood sugars before anybody's lost weight. We yes. see improvements in blood sugars because people are changing the way they're eating, they're moving more, they're getting group support, they're paying attention to their blood sugars, mm -hmm. a clinician is supporting them. And so maybe if we as clinicians could focus on behavior change instead of you need to lose weight, then maybe we could actually support our, our patients better. Now, that would they lose weight? Maybe. Mm -hmm. We don't know always that that's the main goal, but we know that diabetes management, that hemoglobin A1Cs improve with changes in behaviors, weight loss or not. You know, and, and again, the other issue, of course, that we have is that we we, you know, a lot of diets are very ineffective and actually trigger a series of physiological changes in the body that cause increase in appetite, increase in, in the, um, the salient features of food. It tastes better, looks better, decreases in ability to detect satiety and so forth. And, and as well as, as changes in metabolism that drive body weight back up. And so although as a clinician, many people assume that people regain weight because they lack willpower mm -hmm. or the right diet, that in fact, there are physiological changes that are measurable that occur when somebody restricts their caloric intake that can actually backfire in the long run. So again, these assumptions that people lack willpower, or they're just not trying hard enough, or they need to try a different diet really don't pan out when you look at the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love so much about what you said, you know, because very much we have a scale obsession and I'm going to be very um, transparent here. Me too. You know, I, I don't know how old you are, Michelle, but I'm in the middle of going through menopause. I'm 51 years old. And I've always been super active and fit. And, you know, all of a sudden I have this little pooch and the scales like creeping up. Um, I got to a point where I'm like, I'm going to put the scale away and then I'm going to take the scale out. And then what's happening this week? And I definitely became number. The number on the scale became my obsession, not my behavior that day. So I, I love this idea of just flipping it around. Don't focus on the outcome, focus on the day-to-day -day choices, behaviors, things that you can take action on. Um, so how did you do that? Mm, <laughs> because mm. it is, I mean, you know, we're, we're physicians, we're scientists, we like numbers, we like data. So the first things we do to a patient when they walk into our office is what? We make them get on the scale and we check their blood pressure and we, you know, start in our minds already. We're making some assumptions about their health and wellness based on two numbers without even, you know, looking at a chart or speaking to a patient. So how did you change that mindset? 
Well, you nailed it. These are assumptions, right? You know, the truth of the matter is, let me let me go back and have a little sympathy for the for the physician I was who was busy and is looking for any way to kind of help me narrow down what I needed to do. The the problem is that weight is often used as a surrogate for health. It's used as a surrogate for nutrition and physical activity. I think, unfortunately, oftentimes physicians don't even ask the questions. They're not asking. So so we make assumptions about somebody's health. And this is one of the ways that clinicians can offend people in larger bodies without meaning to, by just assuming they don't exercise, Mm. assuming they don't eat healthy, Mm. by recommending a diet or weight loss when they know nothing about what the client, the patient is actually doing. I I keep saying client because I work with uh, various health and wellness professionals who work with both patients and clients. So, um, but we, if we make assumptions about our patients, then we are doing, it's something called microaggressions. It's, Mm. it's death by a thousand cuts Mm -hmm. where, uh, for example, a, a larger bodied patient comes in, there's no chair in your office that's large enough for them to sit in and get out of safely, or they come back to be weighed and maybe they're in a very large body and your scale doesn't even measure their body size. Or they, I, I once, and this is horrifying to me, but I'm going to out myself. I once had a patient step on the little step stool to get up on the table and the entire table rocked. I mean, imagine that, that patient's fear and embarrassment. And here I'm trying to create a therapeutic relationship where I'm really, really totally invested in helping them become healthier. And I have now put them in a, in a position of embarrassment and fear. So our equipment may not be appropriately sized. It, even, even though we all know that you need an appropriate size blood pressure cuff, having mm-hmm. your medical assistant have to go and get one because the one she tried to use initially was too small is embarrassing to the, to the patient. And I'll say the flip side of this is, you know, unknowingly our medical assistant might go, oh, you lost weight since you were last in. Well, there's a lot of things that could be going on. That, That patient might have an eating disorder and that could be a very triggering comment. That patient might have undiagnosed cancer. That patient may regain that weight as often happens and then not come back to see you for follow-up of whatever their initial symptom was because they're embarrassed that last time they got complimented on their weight loss and now they've regained. Mm -hmm. So again, a weight inclusive or a weight neutral approach means let's not always lead with weight. Let's, Let's have conversations about uh, symptoms and actual uh, behaviors and things that could really help. So, th- so your question was, how did I, how did I get into this? Well, the first thing I realized is that diets, as an intervention, are highly ineffective. Um, they cause people not to become just obsessed with the scale, but with calories and grams and portion sizes. And what happens is that we can do this for short periods of time, 
but then eventually we we can't sustain the restriction you know the holidays come an event comes stress comes hunger comes all these mm -hmm. things come and then interfere with our inability to restrict our our intake and then once we begin to eat it's very hard to stop because then we get in the idea of well i've already blown it i can start again tomorrow or in the new year and then the dam is broken we overeat and then feel bad about ourselves and promise that we're going to restart it tomorrow. It's a cycle that I call the eat, repent, repeat cycle. <laughs> so very appropriate. So yeah. Good. Right. And, and we're in, we're in right now we're recording this during the holidays and we're in the eat phase and then, yes. then January 1st January will come and in the repent phase. Right. Right. So that's so interesting. You were talking about, I mean, obviously we're talking about talking, we're talking about our conversations, but I want to go back to the environment, the environment that we physicians and healthcare professionals create for our patients. So I have uh, two offices and I am obsessive about how they look, how they feel, how clean they are. You know, anybody who knows me knows that there's just some things that drive me out of my mind about how our office appears. And some people would think like that stuff is not important to patients. Patients care about, you know, their doctor and their care and how they're received at the front desk, but not so much the environment. The environment is so important. But guess what? I have these gorgeous, perfectly coordinating waiting room chairs. Not a single one of them would accommodate a large person, not one. And I am so embarrassed to say this, Tomorrow, I will have been in practice 19 years, and this is the first time that's ever occurred to me that right. as right. beautiful and whatever our waiting room is, are we really trying to be more accommodating to patients? No. And then the other thing is, and maybe you have some insight about this, Michelle, is why, why do we have to weigh patients at every visit? Is it really a thing? I mean, it is a thing. In fact, it's a thing that I do and I insist that everybody in my practice does it. But why is that? So in your experience, well, tell me what you think about that. Uh, well, first of all, good for you because awareness is the first step to change. Yeah. Even having awareness that maybe I'm not creating a supportive environment, maybe I'm sending a message that you're not welcome here or that I am not going to accommodate you in and of itself is stigmatizing. And by the way, weight stigma is another correlation with some of the conditions that we blame on weight itself, when in fact, living in an environment that makes you feel bad about yourself, that that doesn't create space for you, that doesn't welcome you, that in many cases is um, downright cruel to you, could also be highly stressful. And we know that the chemistry associated with chronic stress Mm -hmm. Exactly. Cortisol and, and the stress of living in this environment could also be correlated with heart disease and other inflammatory conditions. So I think we have to go beyond looking at the scale. So good for you for recognizing that if you want to, if you want to look at, you know, at least having a seat, you know, you also have to consider your other patients who may be in unable to get in and out of chairs easily look for um be benches benches that support larger body weights 
uh, larger size chairs with arms for support getting in and out. And you're going to help not just your larger bodied patients, but others who may have accommodation issues. Um, so I think that's awesome. Why do we weigh patients at every visit? Well, again, it's our weight centric approach. This is, you know, we, there's even insurance measures that require that this happen, but there is a movement away from this. And now a lot of the, a lot of the people that I work with other health professionals who are on board with the weight inclusive approach are coaching their patients to say, uh, I prefer not to be weighed at this visit. I was weighed, you know, two weeks ago when I was here, or this is for a cold. I don't think it's going to impact what the clinician does for me here. And, and if your patient does that, please do not write in your chart that the patient, patient refused, refused to be weighed. Yeah. The patient declined to be weighed because Any patient has a right to decline any medical intervention and weighing a patient is a medical intervention. It has consequences for people who have disordered eating or body image struggles or eating disorders. um, And it can influence the way the clinician approaches that patient in that visit. And so I, I think it's a real issue. Now we do need to, to weigh patients periodically could your scale be in a more private place? Please do not state any statement about the body weight to the patient in the hallway where mm-hmm. others might hear. Um, and I really, as a as a family doctor, I'm particularly protective of children and teens because they are also highly influenced by the impression that they get on your comments about weight. So be very, very careful about that. You know, some patients may need to be weighed and could be weighed backward so that they don't specifically know their weight. So it's not triggering to them. Um, And then if you do feel that, that discussing their weight is appropriate at that visit, ask, you know, could we discuss your weight today? Or I would like to talk with you a little bit about your body weight, uh, how is it okay if we have that conversation? Ask permission. Don't just dive in with advice giving, which is never effective. Right. I was actually going to ask you about that because when I do my well visits, you know, we go through the whole thing and you know this head to toe, right? And for me, there are some conversations that I'm very uncomfortable with, like, you know, until very recently, alcohol, you know, I would always sort of dance around that, like, how much do you drink? Like, because, you know, before we're like, oh, that's okay. And now it's like, really, you really shouldn't drink at all. Uh, Again, another conversation, but I used to dance around that. And, and the weight thing too, I dance around that, like, clearly, this patient uh, is large, I'm going to use some of the words that you use. Mm -hmm. And some of the complaints that they're bringing to me at that visit could be related to, and I can get to the very end of the visit and almost like mumble under my breath. So you want to talk about your weight? Like, (laughs) it's so I don't want to be that doctor that, you know, makes Mm. them feel bad. I really don't. But I also feel like it's my duty to address everything. So is that your approach? Do you simply say, do you mind if we talk about your weight today? Like, is that a sentence you would say? 
Um, I wouldn't, but I certainly understand why why you might and others might. So a few things about this. Um, one is I, I really respect what you're saying, that weight is one factor. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it doesn't have an impact. It absolutely has an impact when you live in a weight-centric culture. Um, your awareness of the potential harm that that talking about it in a way that is harmful could cause is really important. Weight stigma in healthcare is rampant. Um, I, I often, when I, I speak to large groups of health professionals about this topic and I review the actual literature, which obviously we won't have time to do here, but I often dedicate my presentation to a woman named Maud Bennett who lived in Canada. She saw numerous physicians for some abdominal complaints and repeatedly was told to lose weight. Visit after visit, it was related to her weight, her, you know, what she, you know, you should be on a diet, blah, blah, blah. And eventually she was diagnosed with late stage colon cancer and died. Mm. And in her obituary, she said, please, you know, on my behalf, stand up for yourself, you know, require that people address your concerns more fully. So what you're saying is that weight is one metric that you're looking at in an overall wellness visit. And it is, it's important. Now, the simple advice you should lose weight is a little bit misplaced. I guarantee you, and I've worked with thousands of people in various body sizes who have eating issues I guarantee you that not one of your larger bodied patients has not already been made clearly aware that they live in a large body and that they should, by diet, by our um, cultural standards, try to change that. And I guarantee you that the vast majority have tried every diet in the book. And so Absolutely. this is not news to them. And it's rather you know, for us to, especially people who have not struggled with these issues to just say, you know, what you really should do is lose weight is just like, what, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. what? It, it makes us sound completely disconnected from that person's experience. So maybe some questions like, um, and oftentimes they may bring it up themselves. Although I will say to you that sometimes they bring up weight loss almost preemptively, they know you're going to. So mm -hmm. they might as well bring it up as mm -hmm. a way of sort of cutting it off at the pass and, mm -hmm. you know, defending, sort of defending themselves. Um, mm -hmm. I had a, I had a patient once who said to me, you know, I, people will tolerate my body size as long as they think I'm trying to change it. Mm. Wow. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. Now we get powerful. what's what it's like. Yeah, it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. So you might say, you might say, if somebody says to you, um, I, well, I, you know, I, I've tried everything to lose weight. What should I do? Um, well, what, what are you interested in, in doing right now? You know, we know that small changes in the way we eat and move and sleep and stress management make a big difference in well-being. Could we focus on one change that you want to start with? And let's, let's set some goals for you that you, that you feel that you can realistically do because ultimately lose weight is a, is an almost 
useless piece of advice when somebody's tried just about everything. Right. You know, it brings us to the issue that, you know, I'm a little reluctant to talk about in terms of weight loss drugs only because they appear to be highly effective. However, the minute people go off of them, they regain the weight. And so yeah. we are really committing people to a lifetime of these medications. And frankly, we don't have long-term data on them for weight loss. We don't even know long-term what's going to happen, what the potential side effects or problems or whether they would even be effective long-term. So I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not anti weight loss surgery. I'm not anti weight loss drugs. I'm not anti weight loss in general. What I am is anti, uh, let's just tell people to lose weight, drop it at that. And then assume that we've done our job because if anything, I think we can potentially do more harm than good in that circumstance. So I'm thinking back about my patient that I think and maybe I, I should say it a different way. You're just, you're inspiring me to think and speak in a different language almost, Michelle, and I so appreciate that. So I'm thinking to myself, instead of saying, uh, do you mind if we talk about your weight? I say something like, tell me about your nutrition or tell me about your exercise habits or tell me about your stress and sort of leave it open-ended. 100%. Um, Yay. Yay. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's perfect. That you did it beautifully. Isn't that the title of this whole podcast series is totally. tell me more. And that's yeah. what I'm suggesting is that we don't make assumptions about weight and health. We don't make assumptions about a certain person's behaviors based on their weight. And by the way, this, this goes the other direction. Our weight centric culture also causes physicians to assume that somebody in a small body size is automatically is healthy, healthy yeah. is automatically eating well, and is automatically exercising. None of those may be true. We, we cannot make any assumptions based on body size. So to your point, let's ask the questions. Let's ask mm -hmm. the ac exact questions. Can I address why I keep using larger body instead Please, of? Please, I'm fascinated by that. Okay, yeah. Well, so um, in the course of doing the research for my own work as well as for this review paper, um, what we know is that the terms like obesity and morbid obesity and the use of BMI as a way of measuring somebody's risk uh, really is is came out of um, some bad science. BMI was initially developed by a mathematician back in the 1800s, and he was trying to measure uh, towns, cultures. He was trying to measure groups of people. It was normed as many, many labs and other studies are on white men um, not on a diverse culture. Um, and then it was taken by Keyes, Dr. Keyes, and he was looking for a simple measure, a simple way of assessing a person's health. And so he renamed it the body mass index. Eventually they developed those red, green, yellow charts that we've all become familiar with. However, when you go back and look at some of the studies, and they're all quoted in the paper that I'll give you a link to, to share, um, what we see is that in actuality, BMI is a pretty poor predictor of health. 
fully 50% of the people who are diagnosed as overweight uh, are perfectly healthy when you look at their cardiometabolic risk factors. So we need to just get beyond that. Let's look at, let's look not just at your diet and exercise, but let's, let's find out about family history. Let's look at the, the metrics that we want to look at for cardiovascular health. If somebody's having symptoms, let's evaluate those symptoms. Let's not just, you know, pat advise, uh, weight loss. When we use a term like overweight, it implies that there is a right weight to be, and you are over it. Mm -hmm. That isn't actually necessarily true at all. Obviously, the term morbid obesity is very fear inducing and it and it obesity in general has really pathologized body size. It's given what would be seen as almost a clinical diagnosis to an individual's body without really knowing anything about their numbers, their health, their genetics, their behaviors. The truth of the matter is, is that people can live very healthy at a larger body size if they have the support, the the activity. I mean, in fact, if we really want to measure something that will predict health, let's measure their, their physical activity. Let's measure how how much they uh, exercise. Let's measure their cardiorespiratory fitness because that number is much more highly correlated with well-being. But wouldn't you say, I'm sorry, one second, Michelle, yeah. but wouldn't you say as a rule, and I know there's exceptions, of course, but wouldn't you say as a rule that depending on body size, people will have less cardiovascular stamina I don't know that. I would say absolutely not as a rule. Um, and if somebody does have lower stamina, then the solution is to get them into a fitness program that starts low and goes slow, like we do with medications. Start low, go slow. Let's increase cardiorespiratory fitness gradually to your tolerance. And try to get people more active, finding things that they love to do in environments that are not stigmatizing. Because ultimately, cardiorespiratory fitness is something that can be changed with practice. And if we just assume that they have to lose weight first, then we're missing a huge opportunity to improve their well-being. Hmm. So interesting. It makes me think of this I was watching some talent show a long time ago. I don't remember what it was. Maybe Britain's Got Talent or something. And there was a dancer and she came out and she did this flawless dance for, you know, however many minutes across the stage, backflips, the whole thing. She was flawless, but she was in a large body, uh, very noticeably so. And I remember one of the judges actually saying something like, you would have been great, but, uh, uh, you know, ouch. and I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, if she had been like tight, toned, thin, that would have been like a, a absolute no question slam dunk performance, right? So do you see that in your work? Do you see where people, and maybe they even have their talents and their activities stifled a little bit because they shouldn't be doing what they're able to do. 
Right. Yeah. So that, so that what you're bringing up is weight stigma. So it's this, not just this assumption in that your health is, is, uh, affected, but the assumption that you are somehow not worthy and that you, you know, can't do as good of a job or you're going to be ill or whatever. I mean, you can't be as good of a mother, a good, uh, as good of a employee. I mean, there are so many stigmatizing belief systems. And I, I love what you're doing here publicly is that you're allowing yourself to unearth some of the unexamined thoughts and beliefs that you had. We, we, you know, we, we know when we have stigma that we, you know, we look at somebody and, and think, oh, well, they're, you know, they can't be healthy. But oftentimes we have these intrinsic beliefs or intrinsic biases, these implicit biases, these biases that we're not even consciously aware of. And, and there's a, there's a test for that. You can actually take the Harvard implicit bias test. They have it for all kinds of, all kinds of, um, external measures, uh, race, gender, sexuality, and they have one for weight as well, uh, at uh, Arizona state university, where I teach a course, I have my students take implicit, um, weight bias tests on the on harvard.edu and look at their own implicit weight bias. So when we don't know that we have bias, that doesn't mean that our patients aren't picking up on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do and say things that if we were actually to be aware of how it was affecting them, we would be appalled with ourselves. Um, explicit weight bias is uh, you, you know, you're too fat to do what I just saw you do. You know, that's explicit weight bias. Implicit weight bias is, you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And that's what makes that example so perfect is because it exposes our own beliefs that I I can't even believe I just witnessed what I witnessed. That shouldn't be possible. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think there are a lot of things that are possible if we could get out of our own way and begin to see our patients as whole beings who are so much more than a number on the scale or a BMI, that they are indeed people with complex biopsychosocial patterns. And in fact, because weight is the most resistant um, change to make, why don't we focus on the things that really are sustainable and create an environment where people can really thrive and create a, a, a therapeutic environment where we're really there to support them in the behavior changes that they are able and willing to make. And when we make a small change, it often is the beginning of more and more changes. That's what I see in the people that I work with. When I stop focusing on their weight and really focus on uh, their the reasons that they're eating in the first place, in their willingness to begin moving their body in a way that's joyful instead of punitive. You just can't believe the the transformation that occurs. It's it's just literally amazing. Hmm. You know, I love that you just said that because I I consider myself you know just 
pro people and, you know, wanting to see people thrive and be happy. And I consider myself not biased in any shape or form, but I absolutely am biased 100%. And I started to, I was saying this thing to people and I was so proud of myself for saying it. I would say, you know, your weight is not a consequence of your bad behavior. Your weight is the culmination of so many things, but I still was starting with your weight. You know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact that I wasn't maybe linking it to bad behavior is maybe good, but it's still the focus of the thing. The first word is your weight, right? So I think that has to change. And I want to, you know, I know we're over time. I just want to get to what the work you do now and Mm -hmm. how you got there, but more specifically, what do you do? How are you changing this conversation? I'm going to get your free advice and take it back to my practice. Yeah, well, so what I can do now, because I I did leave my practice, might be a little different from what you can do practically in your practice. But I, the first thing that I would recommend is that we um, we not focus on eating less, exercising more. It's pad advice that really doesn't work. I think um, in my work, what I try to do is get people to look at why they do what they do. So my I call what I do mindful eating, and I do, and I'm not talking about tasting and savoring your food. That's part of it, but it's only a very small part of it. What I talk about when I'm when I'm referring to mindful eating is becoming aware of all the decisions that you make in your process of of eating. From oh, I want to eat, I teach people to pause and check in. Am I physically hungry? Because physical hunger is our innate cue that our body needs fuel. So if I want to eat and I'm physically hungry, then I can move on to the next question, which is, okay, how hungry am I? In other words, is this, is this an appropriate time for me to eat? How much do I need to, to plan to serve myself and so forth? If I'm not physically hungry, then that leads me down an entirely different path, which is, well, then why do I want to eat? We live in a in abundant food environment, and as you said to your to your patients, the reason that you have challenges with your eating is because of this environment that we live in, and the habits that we develop, and the messaging that we get around food and body size. And so, if I want to eat and I'm not hungry, there's an opportunity. Do I want to eat because I saw food or there's free food or I paid for it and I've got to get my money's worth or clean my plate like my mother taught me? Or maybe I'm eating because I'm bored and eating is a habit of something to do. Or I'm eating because I'm stressed and what I really want is to feel better. When we begin to go beyond the food and really look at why we're using food, we can solve our challenges with food on a much um, on a much broader and deeper basis and for the individual can actually help them work through this issue in a way that's truly sustainable. When I when my when my patients aren't focused on restricting and good food and bad food, but instead are 
inside out. Well, why do I even want to eat this food? What is the purpose of this? What am I trying to accomplish with this food here? It helps them make decisions that are more about feeling good than being good. Hmm. Amazing. But let me ask you a hard question. And when your patients follow your advice, and I'm assuming you follow them for a long time, right? You have, you know, a longitudinal relationship with your patients in this, uh, in your area now, I'm not talking about your prior practice, but when they engage in those behaviors and they really take to heart your advice, don't they lose weight? Some of them do. Some of them don't. Some of my, some of my patients wouldn't even come to your attention as having an eating problem because their body size falls within the normal air quote range. Um, so eating issues, they cover a swath of body sizes. And so that's another message that I would have for you is to not assume you know anything about somebody's challenges with their eating. A lot of people in smaller bodies are actually struggling deeply with their relationship with food. So I, I don't think people's weight is my business. Um, I think it's their body's business and what their body does with behavior changes is separate from the behavior changes themselves. Um, I, I don't weigh people. I don't actually even physically meet with people anymore. I'm working all virtually, which has allowed me to work with people across the country, across the world. And I've trained, uh, other health and wellness professionals in 35 different countries to offer these workshops, um, in some cases therapy for the, in the case of binge eating disorder, um, and, you know, really to try to help people longitudinally in whatever practice environment they are to do things that are much more effective in terms of awareness of decisions separate from body with the, separate from the goal of body weight change. Mm -hmm. If their body weight changes, fine. That's, mm -hmm. that's great. If their body weight doesn't change. Um, and they are eating in a more balanced way. They're more physically active. They feel better about themselves. They've learned how to have conversations with their physician and other people in their lives who keep focusing on their body weight. Then my job is done here, right? Mm. Oh my God. What a perfect thing to end on. That is amazing. So I'm going to tell you something. I like to take away from every episode something that I can apply to my day-to-day -day practice because I am firmly still engaged in seeing patients, not every day, but multiple times a week. And I have a big practice with 20 clinicians and I like to take back advice. So from this conversation, here are the things that I'm going to take back. Number one, examine our waiting room and just see where we can make it more inclusive. Number two, stop mandating weights at every single visit. Number three, move the scales. I mean, there's no reason why we can't just have a little scale inside every examining room and not in the middle of the hallway. Um, could you give me a few other things that you would love to see me apply? Things that don't involve building a new building or sending my <laughs> entire team to a four-month training because I can't do that. 
Well, I love it. You can bring me in to talk. I'll I'll talk with them for 90 <laughs> minutes. You don't have to bring them into a four-month training. Um, I would suggest that when you want to talk to people about making changes in their eating and physical activity, one of the easiest things you can do is to say to somebody, all right, well, here's an here's a suggestion. The next time you feel like eating, pause and ask yourself, am I hungry? And notice why you're wanting to eat. That is going to help us decide what uh, the next steps might be. So come back and see me in a week or two. Let's talk about what you discovered when you began to think about why you're wanting to eat in the first place. Because what you're doing then is you're getting beyond just pat advice to really creating a relationship of trust mm -hmm. with your patients that you really care about long-term sustainable changes. Amazing. Tell us where people can learn more, Michelle. So my audience is split down the middle, doctors and patients. And I think both populations have a lot to learn from you. Um, so I want to link everything in the show notes. So, you know, Tell me about your programs, your books, your article. Yes, thank you for asking. So our website is amihungry.com. And I called it that because that is such a groundbreaking Oof. question for somebody to ask themselves. Yeah. So it's amihungry.com. And on the homepage, you're going to find a number of different things that'll help. At the bottom, you can download the first chapter of one of my books, Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat, and that chapter will give you the mindful eating cycle and the questions to ask yourself when you're making decisions about eating. The rest of the chapters go into great detail about each of those questions, but that first free chapter will give you a great overview and, and, and cause you to start thinking about why you do what you do. Also on the homepage, you'll find a link for health professionals near the top and you can, you, there's resources. We, we produce one page handouts that you can download for free, as well as information about training. If this is something that you really want to take a deep dive on and learn more about. Um, and of course I do speak and, and, uh, train other health and wellness professionals to begin to think differently about this. So you can also reach me about speaking or, uh, or doing some training for your, for your team. Amazing. Thank you so much, Michelle. That is, this has been, you know, one of the most enlightening episodes for me. I mean, I, I, like I said, I like to take away at least one learning point from everyone. And I've learned so much from hearing patients talk about their bad conversations, but this is more than a conversation. This is a complete shift in a, in a mindset that is much, much bigger than our conversations that we're having with patients and so important, especially in the world we live in now. So thank you so much for taking the time. For everyone listening, my guest was Dr. Michelle May, just an amazing human. And you know, in the show notes, you'll find links to everything she does and uh, believes in. I certainly am gonna explore your website and your book, so thank you for that. Everyone else, this is Tell Me More, Better Conversations in Healthcare. If you have had a bad conversation with a healthcare professional and want to help us do better, please reach out to me, Christine at christinemeyermd.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you for being here. 
My pleasure. It's my pleasure. I'll send you links to everything we talked about as well. So you can include them for people who want more information. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer, MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare. 